Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is the word of the Lord. And let's pray once more together before we look at the uh, scripture today. Well, God, our gracious Father, we thank you again for the privilege of hearing directly from you as from the oracles of God. And so we ask today that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher as we look to the authoritative word that you have given us. Cleanse us and renew us. Revive us and stir us, Lord, at the deepest levels, we pray. We offer our lives to you now as living sacrifices. We open our hearts and our minds to you, O God, and we pray, search us and know us and see if there be any wicked way in us and lead us today in the way everlasting. And now, God, may the words of my mouth and may the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray it in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we're going to take a, a, a brief diversion away from our study in First Peter today. Bishop Charlie Masters, who's going to be with us next week, and I hope that many of you will be able to be present next week uh, for the bishop's visit. I, I can't speak highly enough of Bishop Charlie. I love him dearly, and uh, he's a man who loves the Word and who loves to pray, and I, he's going to carry on with our study in First Peter uh, next Sunday, and I'm looking forward to that. I felt, I felt impressed um, this week that I wanted to take us through the 40th chapter of Isaiah as a slight, um, a slight departure from our study in 1 Peter. And there's such weight, and there's such authority, and there's such beauty to this portion of Scripture that part of me just wants to read it, just to proclaim it, and just to sit and wait in silence upon God. Some things are so holy um, that it seems to even speak about them uh, is, is inappropriate. I always come back to Isaiah 40. I always come back to this passage in particular, and I find that I'm always coming back to the prophet Isaiah himself. It's not just because of the beauty of Isaiah. He's beautiful, right? Isaiah the prophet is beautiful. It's gorgeous stuff. But in Isaiah, we find, we find very powerfully these two themes that we find in Isaiah 40 today, themes of government, and themes of grace. In Isaiah, the, as a book of, uh, the, the whole book, we find the throne of God. And in Isaiah, we find the Lamb of God, the government of God, and the grace of God held together in this precious book. And so if you think about Isaiah chapter 6, many of you will know what I mean even when I say Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah 6, I, Isaiah discovers his call to the ministry, to the prophetic office, and it's marked by this exalted, high, and lofty vision of God's throne. 
And the theme of God's government is set out, and it spreads from there throughout the whole and the entire prophecy until we're assured by Isaiah that God is the uncontested monarch of the universe. God reigns over all things at the highest levels and at the lowest levels. God is king. And his kingship, Isaiah tells us, is marked and colored by grace. And so this king in Isaiah 6 appears in chapter 53 as the lamb who is led to slaughter, the king who decides to become a servant and to bear the sins of those who reject him. And all of us today have rejected the government of God. We all, according to that great chapter 53, have been like sheep, as Jim sung this Christmas. We are like sheep who have gone astray. We have despised the yoke of the sovereign Lord's rule. And so the book of Isaiah opens up with God's great complaint. The Lord God Almighty says, I have nourished and I've brought up children and they've rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know me. And my people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, people laden with iniquity, an offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged from me. And in being estranged from God, all of us have become estranged from ourselves. We do not know ourselves because when we do not know God, we cannot know ourselves. For it's God who sees us. It's God who understands us. It's God who looks down to the very fundamental part of her being and says, I know who you are. I knit you together in your mother's womb. I delighted in you when you were smaller than anything. Being estranged from God, we're confused. We don't know ourselves. And in all of our sin and in all of our confusion, God, Isaiah says, comes to us in our grace. He humbles himself and he bears our folly. He bears our confusion. He bears, he bears all that immoral tangle of our souls, all of our decay, and all of our death, and all of our pain, and all of our confusion. He takes it all upon himself, and he says to us again, I am your salvation. I am your health. I am your wisdom, I am your uprightness, I am your liberty, I am your freedom, I am your reward, I am your joy, I am everything to you. And so in Isaiah we find this exalted king who governs everything, coming to us in grace, wooing us, beseeching us, come, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are scarlet, I will make them white as snow. Governance and grace. The king and the lamb. This is the burden of Isaiah, the prophet, to us today. And I, I feel the need to say this morning, there's a bit of urgency in me that we need to get back to the burden of Isaiah, the prophet. We need to recapture these twin 
features in the church of government and grace, because whenever we stray from one or the other, whenever we forget God as king or forget God as gracious redeemer, we lose our way and the gospel no longer remains the gospel. For the gospel is always the proclamation of king and savior. The gospel is always tender invitation to the sinner and it is also authoritative command. The gospel is come, come, but the gospel is also come. You come now. The king enthroned commands your return to him. The king enthrones commands you to return your loyalty to God on high. And so, my brothers and sisters, today there's a deep burden in my soul that we get back to the enthronedness of God, if I can coin a phrase. That like Isaiah, we, we return to that vision. The Lord, sitting on a throne high and lifted up with a train of his robe, filling the temple and the angelic seraphim crying aloud, covering their faces, Holy, 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 the whole earth is filled with the glory of the Lord. The whole earth from corner to corner, heights and depths is brimming and charged with God's glory. And when we see a God like that, when we're in the presence of a God like that, all of the pretense all of the notions that we are competent on our own to find our way in that life, all of that pretense just dissolves into nothing. My brothers and sisters, I can look pretty good when I compare myself to my neighbor. But in the presence of the one whose very voice shakes the foundations of the earth, I am a man of unclean lips who lives in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And then all I can do is say like Isaiah does, Woe is me, for I am lost in the presence of such a mighty God. Brothers and sisters, we need desperately to return to a vision of the throne, for it's only at that point that we have any sense of what grace means. God's grace means nothing to those who think they're doing pretty good. God's grace means nothing at all to those who think that they're okay. To those like Isaiah who know that they are undone and that they live in the midst of a people that are unclean, grace means everything. We become desperate for God's grace. We desperately throng together as the people of God because the one thing we need is grace. And so what I'd like to do today very briefly is to point out five features of God's exalted nature as we find them in Isaiah chapter 40. I want to give you five, or sorry, four, four today. I meant to do five. Four portraits of Yahweh. Four portraits of God on his throne. And this, I suggest, is the key. Nothing in life will make sense apart from this vision of God. He is the beginning. He is the end. For from him and through him and to him are some things. All things. From him and through him 
and to him are all things, says Paul. To him be glory forever. So let's turn our eyes today to the living God in Isaiah 40. Four features, four portraits that I want to point out to you. Number one, number one, verses, uh, verse 15. Number one, uh, portrait number one, God rules. Reading in verse 15, Behold, the nations are like a drop from the bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. And then looking to verse 17, all the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing. And then verse 21, do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing. And he makes rulers of the earth as emptiness. Now, we're very apt in our ignorance to make much of human achievement. We're apt to buy the enlightenment deception of the inevitable progress of men and women with all of our technology and all of our learnedness and all of our knowing. We're building a great big tower. We're building this great big Babel, and we stand in awe of our leaders. We stand in awe of our captains, our pioneers, and our heroes, our friends who seem to have so much stuff about them, so much impressive stuff. We're, we're pretty impressed with all of these institutions and discoveries and progress and all of our maturity. Now look at what the Lord says to all these things. The nations and all that they are are as nothing before him. They are accounted to him as less than nothing and his emptiness. And do you know why it's nothing to the Lord? It's not because they're not without value. It's not because they're not without merit, but it's because in our folly as a human race, we presume that all these things have come to us without God. We've convinced ourselves that these were our own inventions. We've taught ourselves that we are self-made, and we stand before our mirror, and we preen ourselves, and we say, what a noble thing man is. What a noble thing man is. When in truth, everything that we have comes to us as the gift of God. He is the giver of every good and perfect gift that we enjoy. He raises princes up. He positions men and women in power, and he brings them to nothing again. God is the stream from which every good can come to us. And so there's no Egypt. There's no Greece, there's no Plato, there's no Aristotle, there's no Renaissance, there's no Galileo or Columbus, there's no NASA, there's no Steve Jobs, there's no iPad, there is nothing at all that does not come from God. Every good and perfect gift comes from Him, and yet we stride around, we strut thither and hither, and we say it all comes from us. We've made all these things. God just hasn't wound up the clock and let it go to see what we can do. God is maker and preserver of all things. Everything comes from God. 
and we say it's our own. Now, I work at the university. I said this this week to our study on Wednesday night. Do you know what we call people who take stuff that doesn't belong to them at the university and they say it's their own? We call them plagiarizers. And in the academy, it's a crime. It's wrong to plagiarize, and is it not a crime to walk around this world claiming that what we have comes from ourselves and not from God? God is, we read, the ruler of all things. Everything comes from him. Secondly, we read that God is incomparable. Verse 18, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? And then again in verse 25, to whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Now let me say something to you today. We are in constant danger of thinking that God is like us. It's very true, and it's importantly true, that we are made in God's image, and yet the gap between creator and creature is so wide as to be infinite, and we are always tempted, as we spoke about last week, to bring God down to our level, making the creator like a created thing. And we know that this is so because the Lord complains about it in Psalm 50. Psalm 50, you thought I was like yourself, but now I rebuke you, and I lay the charge before you. And when we do this, When we take God and we start squeezing him into our own mold, we disable the ability to hear God's voice. God certainly wouldn't do that. Well, God couldn't do that. God certainly wouldn't be like, we say. Why? Well, because I'm not like that. Because we're not like that. And God must do as we do. And so we brush away the doctrine of election. We sweep away the doctrine of eternal torment for those who disobey the gospel. We smile condescendingly at the Bible's antiquated views of sexuality and gender, and we say, certainly God cannot be like that, and we take out our human ruler, and we measure God by human standards. For God to be God, he must fit within my human standard. But my brothers and sisters, God is God and he is not a creature. He is creator and preserver of all. And we cannot and must not ever compare God with ourselves. To whom then, Isaiah says, will you liken God? He is not like us and his judgments are not like ours. And so number three, following number two, God is ruler God is, God is um, incomparable. And number three, God is unknowable. Verse 13. Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? And then verse 28. His understanding is unsearchable. And verse 28 mirrors what the psalmist says in 147.5, his understanding is beyond measure. Now, Scripture commands us to know the Lord. It was Paul's passion, right, as we read in Philippians, to know the Lord. But if it's our pursuit to know a God who can be contained, 
who can be circumnavigated if we're trying to squeeze God into an argument or to a, a syllogism that can make sense of his existence and of his being, his commands and his acts and his word. If we want a God that can be perfectly reconciled with human wisdom and human reason, then it's not the God of the Bible that we're trying to know. Listen to me this morning. There are few things so offensive to sinful and fallen human reason that a God that it cannot master. There are few things so offensive to fallen reason than a God it cannot put into a cage. There are few things so offensive to the sinful mind than a God it cannot tame and make our own. God must be like us. But God's thoughts are not our thoughts, we read. As far as my thoughts, as far as the heavens are above the earth, God says, so far are my thoughts above your own. And when fallen sinful reason hears that, in its own perverse lust to be a God itself, it revolts, it cringes, it fumes, and it spits at a God who refuses to be grasped and known. In grace, we can know God only as the unknowable. In grace, we can know only God as the unknowable who reveals himself to us in Christ and yet must always remain infinitely above us. He joins himself to us so inseparably that Peter says we are taken up into the divine nature and yet so as to be always infinitely removed from us as creator. And sin... Perverse human rebellion wants nothing to do with a God it cannot master. Sin wants nothing to do with the folly of a God upon a cross, atoning for sin. In all of its own folly, sin finds us offensive. It's a stumbling block that it refuses to submit to. Do you know what kind of gospel the sinful reason loves? The kind of gospel that makes reason its own savior. The idea that reason will finally unlock all the mysteries of the universe and finally will usher in the salvation of humanity. Sin wants nothing to do with a gospel that makes reason part of the problem. Sin wants nothing to do with a gospel that makes reason part of the problem. A reason that wants to master God. But listen to me very carefully today. God will not be mastered. God will not be tamed. God will not bend his judgments to our own, even if we are most offended by them, for God is God and not a creature. Number three, God remains unknowable. And finally today, God is merciful. In all of our folly and in all of our sin, in all of our refusal to acknowledge him, he invites us to restoration. The message here today in Isaiah 40, whether they, people know it or not, the message here in Isaiah 40 is that sin has exhausted everyone. Even youths shall faint and be weary, we read, and the young men shall fall exhausted. We were never meant to do it without God. We were never meant to do it without the church. We're not designed that way. And we can fool ourselves for a long time. We can think that there's some kind of autonomy and innate reserve in us that allows us to soar and to ascend the heights of this life to make progression. But there is no soaring without God, we read today. 
There is no ascending the heights without God in one way or another, at one time or another. Eventually, everyone will be exhausted by sin. Sin will destroy everyone who turns from God. They all fall down. They all become exhausted. Turning from God never brings life. It only brings death in this life and in the life to come. And even though we reject him, even though in pride we claim his gifts as our own, he comes gently and he comes tenderly today and he invites us in grace back to himself. And he says, I know you're tired. I know you're weary. I know it's hard to deal with all of your confusion and all of your brokenness. I know you've been hurt and dismayed. I know you're sorrowful and afraid. You've never been made to do it without me. You've never been made to do it without my guiding word. That was never meant to be. I know you're broken. And I can take you to heights and profound wholeness if you will just come to me and wait for me. I will renew your strength. I will restore you. I will heal you. I will make you so as to run and not be weary. I will make you so as to walk and not faint. And if that's you today, and many of us need to come to the Lord again, many of us need to hear the call of the gospel in all of our brokenness, in all of our weariness, in all of our own rebellion, our, our refusal to heed the word of the Lord, in all of the brokenness and tiredness that we've experienced, we need many of us to come back today to the living God. And if that's you today, then I ask that you simply bow your head and quietly join me in a closing prayer. Oh God, I have sinned and I have turned myself away from the living God. I have not drunk from the fountain of life. In your grace and goodness, O oh Lord, bring me back to yourself. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Fill my life with your strength. I surrender my all to you. In Christ's name, amen. And the Lord Jesus, have mercy upon all of us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.